You're listening to The Healthy Church, a series preached by Pastor Rick Dressler at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. We started last week a new series called The Healthy Church, and um, I usually don't ask people to do this, but I would encourage you, if you were not here last week, that you would go back home sometime this week, go to the website, and catch the first um, sermon of this series. It's important. We want to be on the same page, and for the next several months, we've taken this time to talk about what it means to be a healthy church. And so, for our people and for our members, it's good for us to be reminded. And for folks who come here, who are sort of on the, the, the outskirts, or you've been coming for a long time, you need to know what our church is about and where we're moving and the direction that we're going. And we pray that this would help you and would help us as we look to be a church that honors and pleases our Lord and Savior. So, with that said, let me just quickly review from last week, and I will do it quickly, and then jump into the first point of six on what a healthy church looks like. So, last week we were in Ephesians chapter 3, we talked about the church, and we said several things about it. Number one, we said that the church in the past was a mystery. It was something that God had intended, His eternal plan and purpose, but was not revealed until the right time. And Paul speaks about that. It used to be that the Jewish mind, in the Jewish mind, there were only two races, Jew and Gentile. That was it. If you weren't Jew, you were nothing. And God says, wait a minute, there's going to be a third race, a new race, not Jew, not Gentile, but a new humanity, the church, where there is no more separation. There is no Jew or Greek or barbarian or Scythian or bond or free or male or female. It is one. It is united. And this was the mystery of the church. It's where we're at today. And then he says that the church was the manifold wisdom of God. That God in his manifold, many-faceted wisdom said, listen, I want to show you my wisdom. I want to display my wisdom. And so I will do it by the church. And this was amazing. Last week we saw that he takes the church and God says to the angelic host, if you want to know how wise I am, look what I'm doing in the church of Jesus Christ. That was all from Ephesians 3. And then we added this at the end just to make sure we understood the magnitude of the church. We said from the book of Acts, chapter 20, verse 28, that not only was it the mystery of God, the manifold wisdom of God, but he made the church his own by his blood. And so, if that's the church, you must understand it's important. It's really important. And so last week we took a few moments just to say, look, at if that's the idea of the church, what's the design? There were four things we talked about. The church then is made up of those who are saved. They are born again believers in Christ. It is not made up of religious people, Baptist people, Catholic people. It is made up of saved people. People who understood they were sinners in need of a Savior. They were underneath the wrath and condemnation of God. There was no hope for them in their own ways, in their own works. And yet God in his love said, I will devise a plan to satisfy my justice, to show mercy. I will send my son Jesus Christ, the perfect Lamb of God, to take your sins, to pay the price, to be the substitute and he will die in your place so you don't have to die eternally. 
He died, was buried, and rose again. And all those who repent and believe can know this salvation. So, if you're here this morning, we said there's four things we'll talk about. If you're here without Christ, understand that you're not part of the church in the truest sense unless you're born again. And today is the day of salvation. There are no guarantees. We have funerals that say, yes, they were older. And isn't it strange how the word older changes as you get older? I remember my parents when I was a teenager being in their late 30s. They started early. And I thought, oh my goodness, they're so old. And now that I'm 50, I realize, I just talked to my dad this morning, 70 years old, I realize that 50 is the new 20. <laughs> right? So, amen. So, so we, we know that, we, and we think, okay, the old will die, the old must die, but you and I know that's not true. No guarantees. Not for a two-year-old, a 20-year-old, or a 120-year-old. We're going to die. You must be born again. So they're saved. They're baptized. Listen to me. And, and this, if, if, you, if you say, ah, oh, you just make it. Acts chapter 2. Go there. This is what we talked about last week. Go back and listen to it. But in the mind of the first century church, the early church, there was no idea that I'm going to be saved and I'm going to think about baptism. They were so close together that when they were saved, they were baptized, they were added to the church. Baptism is an identification with Jesus Christ. And I really do worry about this. When I was growing up, um, I have a sense now I'm going to be going all over the place. So I'm just feeling it now because I'm not even into the message yet. So, but when I was a kid, there was a girl in our Christian school who was a, a, a daughter of a staff member, and she made a profession of faith in Christ. She said, I trusted Jesus. But when push came to shove and they said, listen, if you're saved, you should be baptized, the girl said, as a teenager, I will not do that. That is so embarrassing. I don't want to get wet. Okay, now listen to me. I understand fears. I understand that. But may I remind you that Jesus Christ died publicly, naked, and ashamed for you. And to have the thought that identifying with him somehow is embarrassing, I would submit to you that you've not comprehended what you've been saved from. And by the way, that girl, she wasn't saved. She was lost. and has nothing to do with God. They were baptized. They then entered into a living commitment one with another. Acts chapter 2, 41, 42. It tells us that they devoted themselves to each other. Church of Jesus Christ. Part of being part of the church is being part of the church. We are devoted to each other. We meet with each other. We, we, and not the cliche, we do life with each other. That's what we do. We show up. We show up and celebrate. We show up and worship. We show up and weep together. This is the church. And then finally, they love. By this one thing shall all men know you're my disciples, that you love one another. And, and, and we said, again, um, the isolation is easy. But God takes the body and crams it together so we learn to love one another. So that's where we were at last week. 
And we really had a tough time. How many folks were here last week? You were here last week. Okay, so you know this. We tried to figure out how to say me, we, us, the church. Remember that? It was grammatically incorrect. It was terrible. You did a terrible job. <laughs> a terrible job. And I thought, after I got home, I thought, everything we said was grammatically incorrect. But with that said now, I want you to think about the church. When we say church, save, baptize, living commitment together, loving one another. The church is not 500 Indian Creek Road West. It's not. The church is you. The church is me. And I figured a way we could say this. In light of the recent success of the Raptors, we the North, right? We the church. And that's the truth. So as we go through this series, you find where you're at on this four scale, save, baptize, living commitment with each other and loving, and make adjustments. If you're lost, get saved. If you need to be baptized, get dunked. If you're not living in commitment here and it's hit and miss, stop. And if you don't know how to love people, keep showing up, and you'll learn. You'll learn the hard way, right? So that was the foundation. That's where we started. So the question then is, if that's the church, what makes a healthy church? And there are lots of thoughts, and, and you this morning will have thoughts in your mind already. Maybe you're formulating them. Maybe you've thought about this. What does a healthy church look like? And if you were to survey people, they would say, well, a healthy church must be friendly, right? And, and the truth is, I talked to numbers of people in our church who said, when I came there, it was friendly. I was greeted, important, but it was a friendly church. And you'd say, well, that's important. A healthy church must be friendly. Good. Others would have a different idea and say, well, not only the church should be friendly, they should have good music. I mean, music's important, and so whatever your idea of music is, some people think it's got to be more conservative, some people think it's got to be crazy, but that's what makes the church. Others would say a kid's program. It's the future. We've got to have the right kid's program or community outreach, making an impact, or the facilities. They've got great facilities there. Um, some would say the parking lot. <laughs> now listen to me. Listen, years ago, this is true, we, we had a family drive into our church, and when they drove into our church and found out it was a gravel parking lot, they turned around and left. Now, do you know what I say to that? Hasta la vista, baby. Because uh, if that's what you think makes a... So can we all at least agree that a good church, the parking lot doesn't matter? Yes? Okay? All right, good. If you think it does, we'll talk later. <laughs> and there's this prevailing thought in our world today, and we've got to be careful of it. But the church, if we really want to grow and be healthy, we have to make people feel good. We have to meet their needs. But if that's our goal, there's a problem. Because when people discover that there are other ways to feel good and have their needs met, they soon leave the church they no longer need. So, the church is central to God's plan. We must get this right. And my heart is for our body of believers that we get this right. I don't want to play at church, man. I don't. If you're playing, this is a really dumb game to play. Because when you understand it, there's, there's too much involved, man. It, 
Christ is asking you of your life. I'm not exaggerating. We say things like, pick up your cross, and that means I'm really having a hard time. You know, I spilled my coffee this morning. Pick up, I'm going to pick up my cross. No. No. When Jesus said that, he was referring to the death by crucifixion, and when a criminal picked up his cross, he was considered no longer human. The truth is, many of them desired to die by the, by the time they came to the place of crucifixion because the soldiers, the crowds, could do whatever they want to them because that guy was as good as dead. And so when Jesus says to his followers, pick up your cross and follow me, what he's saying is, we die to the self-life. Not because I spilled my coffee, and devil not today, but I die to self. And so we've got to get this right. And we've got to stop with the idea that the church is somehow supposed to be relevant. The church already is relevant. It's been relevant for 2,000 years. We don't have to send the press out to try to change our image. We don't have to try to be cool. The church is not cool. The church is true. So let the church be the church. So what's a healthy church this morning? I'm glad you've asked. Here's the first point in a, in a number of six. The first point that we'll talk about is this. A healthy church sees the importance of the word of God. The word of God. If we get this right, everything else falls in place. You and I have known of churches that used to be good churches. And now they don't resemble the church. And some people say, well, I know what happened there. They changed their music. And because they changed the music, that church just went to pot. That was the beginning. That was the problem. That's how it started. Or they changed their dress codes. I mean, they got casual and all of a sudden the church fell apart. Or they changed their standards and, and that blew it. My friend, that is not why the church falls apart. The church falls apart because they leave the word of God. Listen to what Martin Lloyd-Jones said, and this is not hyperbole. He's right on. He says, the health of the church depends on the health of the pulpit. What comes from here must be the word of God. It must be. And specifically, we're talking about expository preaching. And if you don't know what that is, it's okay. But you do know, you might just not know the word. In Nehemiah 8.8, the Bible tells us this, that Ezra the priest read the book, read the law of God distinctly, and gave the sense and caused them to understand. What it means is you open the word of God and you expound on it. You don't come up with stuff on your own. You open it up in the context and you preach what it says. Not what you think, not what you feel, but what it says. And this is different from topical preaching. A topical preaching is a sermon that comes from a chosen theme. It's not necessarily built around the text. As a matter of fact, in a topical message, you already know where you're going. You pick the topic and then you find verses to back it up. Now listen to me. That's not always a bad thing. 
the truth is, as I thought about this, this is what we're doing. I'm doing topical messages right now. Okay, so it's not evil. It's not evil. It's necessary. But there's a difference. And the difference is when a church is committed to just topical preaching, and we're assuming now they, they think the word of God's important. Topical preaching has some dangers. Number one, if, you're, if you just preach topical preaching, um, you have a danger of preaching yourself and what you think and what you think is important. Not only that, um, you can use it as an axe to grind. You can survey the church and see a problem. And again, there are times you have to deal with a problem. But some guys, all they do is every week find a problem, then get in the pulpit and use it for a whipping post to beat people, not going through the word, but taking a topic and going to get them like that. By the way, we don't do that here. As we go through the word of God, if it hits you, it hits you. Okay? If i got a problem with it, I'll talk to you. I don't need to use this as a platform for it. And the third thing is the danger of topical preaching is it becomes a hobby horse. Because if there's something that's really important to me, I just keep on preaching about it. And after years, 18, 19 years, that gets really old. G. Campbell Morgan made this, this illustration. It's, it's great. He was talking about a Baptist preacher who was fixated, fixated on baptism. And so he, one Sunday morning, he opened the Bible and said, Our text today is Genesis 3, 9. Adam, where art thou? I have three points. Point number one, Adam, where was he? Point number two, uh, how did Adam would be saved from where he was? And point number three, and finally, just a few words on the importance of baptism. Right? Nothing to do with the text. So expository preaching lets, us, lets the text order the sermon and guide the application. It makes the word fully known. What's happening in our churches today is the word is not fully known. The church cannot become fully mature without knowing fully the word of God. So it's important. So, with that said, let's now look at Ephesians 4, and I want you to see the importance of word-focused ministry and why this is important to us. Ephesians chapter 4. Remember that the first three chapters, Paul is writing, and he's talking about our salvation. He's talking about the Gentiles becoming fellow heirs with the Jews. He's talking about the church. What he's been doing for these first three chapters is he's been teaching us. It's doctrine. Paul does this often. He starts with what God has done and what God has said, and now the next three chapters are going to tell us what to do with this. In light of what we know now about the church, right, the mystery it was, how God wants it unified in a new humanity, the manifold wisdom of God, and the fact that he made us his own by his blood. In light of that, look at verse number one of chapter four. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called. Paul says now, in light of what we know about the church, I want you to walk worthy of your calling. Right? That word worthy there means weight. The idea of weight. This is weighty. It's got value. It's got worth. And what he's saying is that when the church knows who she is and what God has done and given her, therefore, we are to live lives equal to our blessing. Walk worthy of the calling that you've been called by. What we are as a church, Paul says, should affect how we live. How we live. 
And Paul says, there is a way that the church is to live. And so, if we wanted to, we could stop right here and say, is that Ren crying? Is that her? You want me to hold her? No, I won't. Okay. We could stop here and we could say, well, you know, live worthy of the way God wants you to live. And I could go through it and make up a ton of things. But here's the beauty of Scripture. I don't have to make anything up. Do you know why? Verse 2. Verse 3. Is that Elliot crying? Okay, stop it. He says, church, be the church. Walk like the church. Look at what he says in verse 2. If you have any questions on what he's talking about, he says, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Paul says, church, when you understand what you are, who you are, then we are to walk worthy of that. The blessings that we've been given to walk in that, and that means to walk in humility and unity. Arrogance and self destroys the church. Destroys the church. And all the problems that we have <coughs> come from pride and self. Every one of them. Somebody wants to boast themselves and lift themselves up. It causes disunity. We are to walk in humility and unity. And then, verses 4 through 6 now, he continues. Again, this is the same thought in the text. He tells us where our unity is rooted in. Verse 4. There is one body and one spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. So Paul says... Church, you're glorious. You're beautiful. Walk worthy of the blessings that you have. And you do that by being humble and united. But Paul knows this. Paul knows people. And people are not unified. And this is where it gets really hard. And so here's what he says. I want you to know something. The church's unity is rooted in the triunity of God. Spirit the Lord Jesus Christ, and one Father. And what he's telling us there is that the triune God is three and yet one, eternal and inseparable, just as the body is supposed to be. One body, many members. We are to be unified. Unified. And that's why we come together, and we don't live in isolation. Belonging is costly, but it's satisfying. Verse 7. God knows how difficult this is for human beings because we're not him. He gives us the example. But look what verse number 7 says. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. God has not left the church on her own. He gives grace. And that word grace has the idea of ability to perform what God has called you to do. God says... You have tremendous weight, value, worth. You're my bride. You're beautiful. I have a way for you to live in unity, just as I am united in my person. So, I've given you a gift to live like this, to live lives that are equal to our blessings, to live lives that are unified as believers, and we'll see shortly, to live lives that are blossoming into Christ-likeness. 
So here's what he does. He gives gifts. Verses 8 through 10 now, is the, he's calling or referring back to Psalm 68. Uh, he says, um, Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it but that he descended first unto lower parts of the earth? He that descendeth is the same also that ascendeth up above all heavens, that he might fill all things. And this imagery is a beautiful picture of Christ, the conquering king, giving gifts to his church. So he says, listen, God has not left you on your own. He's given grace the ability to serve. Why? Because he's conquered everything. Jesus Christ is Lord. And what he does as Lord then to his churches, he gives these good gifts. Now, there are lots of gifts for the church. But Paul's talking about unity, right? So now listen to the gifts that God gives to the church, verse number 11. And he gave some apostles. Who are the apostles? You know the apostles, who they are? There are 12 of them, right? Okay, good. We're on the same page, right? 12 of those guys. The apostles and some prophets. And this is interesting. He's not talking about Old Testament prophets. We know in the book of Acts that the prophets came alongside the apostles and preached the message. We see that in Acts 11, 13, and 15. There were prophets during the early church. And then he says evangelists. You know what evangelists do? They see birth happen. Right? And then he says pastors and teachers. They feed the flock. Now, listen to me. Okay, I know everyone's tired. Listen to me. Apostle, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Think with me now. What characteristic do all of these gifts have in common? Pardon? The Word of God. They teach and proclaim the Word of God. All of them. And he says, this is the gift I've given to the church to see them live with the blessings. They understand that. Um, then to be unified as believers and then eventually to blossom into Christ. Look at verse number 12. Notice the word Focused ministry. And again, it's not music-focused ministry. It's not drama-focused ministry. It is not community service-focused ministry. It is not a building project ministry. It is not a parking lot ministry. It is word-focused ministry. Why it's so important. Look at verse number 12. He gave these gifts for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. That perfecting of the saints means complete furnishing. That God has given the gifts of teaching the word to furnish completely the body of Christ to edify itself. And when word-focused ministry is weak or missing, these gifts are hindered and the church is unhealthy. Verse 13, look what it produces. The gift of teaching and preaching the word, verse number 13 Till we all come into the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. When the word of God is proclaimed, what happens is this. The church is unified in their faith. You know, we try to come up with unity in all these different ways, like, well, ethnic, we'll have, we'll have ethnic unity, or we'll have denominational unity, or we'll have uh, unity in a personality. He says, no, the word of God is preached. We have unity in the faith. Then we have knowledge of God. 
The Bible presents Christ, and we begin to look like Jesus Christ. God wants his church to be healthy. He's given gifts of grace for teaching his word, and here's why. Look at verse 14. That, right, we have pastors, teachers, to build us up, to edify us, to come into the knowledge of him so we grow up like Jesus, that we henceforth be no longer children tossed to and fro, and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the sight of them and cunning craftiness whereby they wait to deceive. God says, I've given these gifts of teaching the word so that you are no longer children. You need to grow up. Listen to me. I love babies. I'm actually the baby whisperer. I do love babies. And I'm not, I'm not bad with them, right? Okay. Um, Oh, um, I better not try it now because it might, it's out of pressure right now. I might not do it. Um, but, but just love babies, right? And so we have now three grandchildren, and we love them dearly, and it's, it's awesome. And, and no matter what they do, I think it's cute. Now, the moms and dads don't think so. Elliot can cry all night, right? Ren has a raspy cry. She sounds like Janis Joplin or Bonnie Tyler if you're younger. And Adeline has attitude. She's just, she's six months now. She, and, and for me and Kim, it's like, I don't care. It's great. They're babies. We love them. They're enjoyable. It's fantastic. And that's good. But listen to me. If at 30, they still got that raspy cry wearing diapers and spitting up all over the place, something is wrong. Not cute anymore. At all. Believer. God says, grow up. Some of you sit in this church, and you have become perpetual children. Everything offends you. Everything's a problem. Uh, you look at everything around you instead of the Word of God. It's because you have not allowed the Word of God to infiltrate your heart and life and transform you, so you grow up. And you have a responsibility here. It's not just showing up on Sunday and feed me. What do you do for me? You can do anything if I'm going to preach the word. You've got to devour it. You've got to take it. You've got to submit to it. You've got to do it. So he says, grow up. Grow up because there's great danger. Toss to and fro. Children are fickle. They're unstable. They're gullible. They're easily influenced. And for us, easily influenced by the latest book the latest preacher, or the latest fad. They're carried away. People are carried away by false teaching and false teachers. So, if you don't have this, you're in trouble. You're in trouble, man. It is the nature of sheep to stray. How do I know that? Because I'm a lamb as well. Our hearts are prone to water, wander. It is the nature of sheep to stray. Listen to me. It is the nature of wolves to eat. The nature of wolves. The world is full of scores of people who want to deceive you and trip you up. And God says, I've given you gifts. I've given you gifts to be unified. I've given you gifts to blossom into the image of Christ. And the gifts are the teaching of his word. It's our safeguard. Verse 15 says, you have a part. 
but speaking the truth in love may grow up unto him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. So, so he says, you got these gifts, and then church, family, speak the truth in love. Literally means truthing. Well, let me ask you a question. Well, what is truth? Pilate asks you, what is truth? What does John 17, 17 say? Thy word is truth. The word is truth. We have an obligation, we, the church, not just we the elders, we the teachers, we the church have an obligation to truthing, to speaking truth to one another. And, and listen to me, you know this. Um, love without truth is hypocrisy. Don't talk about loving people if you don't tell them the truth. Well, I love them too much to tell them they're lost and going to hell. No, you hate them. Really. You love yourself. I love my kids too much to correct them. No, you are setting them up for failure. You love yourself. But truth without love is brutality. I'll just tell you the truth. Nobody cares. Nobody cares. You need them both. But now listen, if you don't know the word, how you truth in anything. We've been through a rash of sadness. And I want to tell you something. What sustains families who go through real grief is not you saying, thinking about you. Don't tell me that. Because I don't care that you're thinking about me. I would rather have you pray for me. Don't, don't think about me. Or we say these cliches, well, time heals all. Really? That's all you got? Or we say outrageous, stupid things that are bad theology. Well, they're angels now. What? What? You know what they need? They need the Word of God. Where does my help come from? It comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Our God is a God of all comfort who comforts us in all our tribulation. He will never leave you nor forsake you. As the Father pities his children, so the Lord pities those that love him. What shall separate from the love of God? Right? That's what they need. And the problem is, we don't know it. So we got nothing to say. So the church is weak and anemic because the members of the church don't know the word of God. And then finally, verse number 16. Here's what happens when it's functioning the right way. From whom the whole body fitly joined together, and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, everybody doing their part, makes increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. What is he saying there? When everybody does their share, taking in the word of God, giving out the word of God, submitting to the word of God, the body builds itself up in love. It's a well-oiled machine. It's a healthy church. That's what we want. That's what I want. Anybody else with me? Amen? All right. Some of you are. Okay, we'll take the sum. All right? I know you're tired. I'll give you a break. I'll ask you again next week. We want a healthy church. Three points to stop with. In order to have a healthy church, we must, we must preach expository messages. And again, understand what I'm saying. This is not, it's not the be-all, end-all, but it should be the, the flow of our church. The church grows in life and vitality as they organize their life around the word. And the church of Jesus Christ to be healthy. You know, we're not life coaches. 
You preach the word of God. And as the church organizes around that, there is life there. Listen to what Spurgeon said. I love what he says. He says, from every town and village and little hamlet in England, wherever it may be, there is a road to London. Right? Do you get the picture? No matter where you're at in, in, in England, there's a road to London. And then he says this. In every text of Scripture, there's a road to Christ. That's why it changes us. That, that's why we need to look at the text and see Jesus. It changes us. So we must preach expository. You must listen expositorily. To listen, right? Because the church will look like the one it listens to. Let me just, I, I wonder this morning now, do you know what we did in Ephesians chapter 4 this morning? It's called expository preaching. You know that? That's what we did. And I bet now that if you were to go home, have you ever been in, in, a, in a sermon or a message where you say, man, the pastor opened the text and I never saw that before? Probably because it's not there. That was great. I never saw that. Where did he get that from? Himself. That's not there. So you leave and, and you can remember what a great sermon, but it wasn't there. Now you can go home today, next week, next month, next year, and say, Ephesians 4, let me see. Well, the first three chapters are talking about the church. Paul says then, I'm begging you to walk worthy of your calling. So what does that mean? Well, let's see. Verses 2 and 3. Walk in humility, in unity. Man, that's hard, Lord. How do I know to do this? Well, it's all rooted in the triunity, 4 through 6. Man, it's still hard, Lord. Verse 7, God says he's going to help me and give me grace. What's the grace? Well, there's teachers involved there. What do they do? They build up the church. They edify the church. Why? Because we're children. We need that. And if you kept on reading, verses 17 to the end, he's going to tell you how to live a holy life. Isn't that better for you? Listen expositorily. Read expositorily. Is that a word, expositorily? It can be. It is now, all right? It is now. Read the church expositorily, all right? Read it that way. Whether you think it's doing any good or not. I got a quote here by uh, Ryle, J.C. Ryle. Here's what he says. Because some of you folks, you start reading a chapter, you're like, ah, I don't know if it's going to do any good. Read it again and read it again and read it again. Why? He says this. Do not think you are getting no good from the Bible merely because you do not see that good day by day. The greatest effects are by no means those which take the mo make the most noise. They are most easily observed. The greatest effects are often silent, quiet, and hard to detect at the time they are being produced. Think of the influence of the moon upon the earth, air upon your lungs. Remember how silently the dew falls and how imperceptibly the grass grows. There may be far more going on than you think in your soul when reading your Bible. Read it. And don't just say, oh, God bless me. Oh, there's a verse for the day. Pop. Don't, don't do that. that. You're missing the point. Read it. If you don't understand it, read it again and read it. That work is happening in your heart. And you will look back a year from now if you do this and say, oh, my goodness, God, he was right. That was true. Your word is changing me. And then submit to it. None of this is of any value this morning. If you leave here, go turn your radio on, watch TV, and forget everything we talked about and do nothing. We want a healthy church. We want a healthy church, which means we want a healthy you. 
which means we got to open the book. We got to read it in the context. We got to let the, the context and the text guide and, 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 and move in our application of it. And when we do that, we will begin to look like the one who we're reading about. Let's pray this morning.